Well, again, good morning, church. Let's try that again. Good morning, church. I'm not sure how anybody could be asleep after we spent a few moments just declaring the greatness and glory of our God. I'm excited to be with you this morning. I'm excited to begin uh, this series that we'll be doing for the next six weeks, the 40 Days of Prayers. And uh, throughout these next six weeks, as we gather on Sundays, as you gather and live life each day, our heart and our desire and our focus over these next six weeks is simply the aspect of reawakening to Christ. To reawaken to Christ. And we're going to look at some different aspects of that over the next six weeks. But I hope that as we walk through this together as a church family, and this isn't something just First Alliance is doing, this is something that we're doing together as an entire Alliance family, that you will lean in and be present as a part of that. And I hope that as, even as we talk about reawakening to Christ, well, I don't need to do that. I'm fully awake to Christ. I can promise you, church, no matter where you are in your journey with Christ, there is more. There's more. There's more that God is calling us to do and inviting us to be a part of. And so I hope that no matter how long you've known Jesus, how long you've walked with Jesus, where or even where you think you currently are on your spiritual journey, that you will be present fully and lean into these next six weeks as we do this together. So let's begin this morning. Our theme uh, this, for this year's 40 Days of Prayer is reawakening the Christ. And specifically today, our focus is reawakening to the glory of Christ. And as we begin this morning, I want to draw our attention to a verse uh, in an Old Testament minor prophet book, the book of Habakkuk. And I will probably be able to read the book faster than you'll be able to find the book. But if you want to go ahead and find it there, that's all right. Um, But we begin this morning with the opening lines of what starts a prayer of the Old Testament prophet prophet Habakkuk in chapter 3 and verse 2. And as he starts this prayer, as he writes, he says this. He says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, what is the context of, of this verse? What is the context of, of what Habakkuk is writing here? Well, the reality is that the prophet Habakkuk knew uh, that discipline was coming uh, for the Israelites of Judah. Uh, what we know is the 70 year exile in Babylon. Uh, now, Habakkuk didn't want it to happen, uh, but he knew it was coming, and more importantly, he accepted that it was coming because he knew and he recognized that the people had strayed far from God. They had strayed really far from God, and so that they needed to be taught a lesson in love for them to come back, come back to the Lord, which, if we're honest, we know God still does in our lives today. And so Habakkuk didn't want it to happen. He wasn't excited, but he also recognized it needed to happen and he accepted that it was going to happen. Plus, Habakkuk was also aware that not only would God use the Babylonians to draw the Israelites back to him through this process that was about to begin to unfold, uh, but he also knew that when it was all over uh, that uh, God would turn his attention to the Babylonians in a not very nice way. Uh, so, So there was a little bit of hope on the other side of that, I suppose, if you're from a Jewish perspective. But that's not really the point of of this verse today. In this verse, though, we we see a particular phrase that sets the stage for us today. And it comes about halfway into the verse. And depending on your translation, it will depend on how it phrases, but in the one from the NIV, it says, repeat them in our day. Habakkuk writes, repeat them in our day. 
Now, one of the things that, that we need to understand about that phrase there and, and, and what, what Habakkuk is writing, which sets the stage for us, is Habakkuk's request was not to do, for God to do the exact same thing again that he had always done. So often I think uh, we look at the stories of the past and, oh, that was so op- awesome. God, would you do that again? That's not what Habakkuk was asking for. He was actually asking for God in the phrasing of repeat to renew, to revive, to reawaken his mercy, his might, his presence, his power, and his pardon for his people. So as we look at that, as we consider this today, there's two things, I think, for us today. The first off is the cry to reawaken or to renew or to revive or whatever word you want to use there, whatever word your translation has. And the second thing is what it is that we need to actually reawaken to. And so as we get started, I have two questions for you. One is what sh- why should these two things matter to us as we begin a new year? And not just because it was on an outline that I was handed by the Alliance. Uh, but why really should these two things matter to us as we begin a new year? And perhaps more importantly, what is the Lord calling us to be and to do because of who he is? Will you pray with me? Father God, in these moments we, we gather Probably a lot of us have different reasons for being here at this moment today. But here we are. Here we are, Lord God, gathered together as your people. And so, Lord, as we are gathered here, my prayer for us in this moment is simple. Would you speak to us? Lord, as we enter into this 40 days of prayer, as we enter and hear the challenge to reawaken to Christ, Lord God, would you allow us to hear that challenge and to respond? I don't know where each of us are at this morning. I don't know what each of us is dealing with. I don't know what word you have for us fully. But Lord, I do pray, would you give us ears to hear Would you give us an open mind to your truth? Would you give us a heart that is willing to surrender? Lord God, would you give us eyes to see your glory among us? Lord God, would you give us the will and the strength and the desire to lean in to our Savior Jesus as Lord? Lord God, would you bless us with with your presence and with your glory? not for our benefit, but so that our attention and our focus and our hearts and our minds and our actions and our attitudes are drawn to Jesus, to Jesus alone. And so in these moments, Lord, begin to speak. Allow us to hear and respond. And may you be glorified above all else as we are gathered today. In Jesus' name. Amen. So our theme for this 40 days of prayers is is reawakening to Christ. Our theme for today, our focus today is reawakening to the glory of Christ. And so to me, it begs the question as we begin to talk about this, is a reawakening even possible within generations? 
Is it even possible for us to experience a reawaken in the days that we live in? Now, some of us are probably already skeptical. And no matter what generation you may be thinking of, whether it's your generation, the one that comes after you, the one that's before you, the one that's to either side, depending on whatever age you are, you may be sitting there thinking, no way, too far gone, there's no hope. Before we rule and dismiss the idea of is a reawakening even possible, as before we dismiss that out of hand, let's start with this question. What is an awakening? How can we dismiss something if we don't even know what we're talking about yet? So what is an awakening? Well, the definition of, a, of reawaken uh, from the Oxford Dictionary says to emerge or cause to emerge again with reference to a feeling or state. In the Collins Dictionary, it says renewal of a feeling or interest. Here's the thing about the idea of an awakening. It's a verb. It's an action. Dare say even a choice that each of us has to make to be a part of. Now, if you're familiar with church history at all or just history even in general, uh, historically there have been a number of times within the church, the big church, uh, we, we refer to as awakenings. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the first great awakening in the, the mid-1700s. There was a second great awakening in the late 1700s into the early 1800s. Um, perhaps you're familiar with some of the spiritual resurgence that happened under people like Moody and Sankey and Spurgeon in both the U.S. and England in the late 19th century. And one of the things that if you look at all of these um, things that they had in common, these times could be described as a time of deep hunger for Jesus. The reality of his presence in our lives, his word, his spirit, his gospel being the focus of the people. But as we are asked the question of what is an reawakening, re say that three times fast, the call to reawaken is not actually a modern spiritual thing that we've invented to try and you know, be, you know, have a cute phrase or whatever the case may be. It's not a modern aspect of our spiritual lives. Jesus himself called the church to reawaken. In fact, if you look at Revelations 2 and 3, Jesus' words to the seven churches were a call, a beckoning to, him, to them to reawaken to him and his glory. And as you read on from those chapters, from that calling, from that invitation, you see and we see the wonder and the glory and the majesty of Jesus. Not those churches, but of Jesus. So how does an awakening come? It's easy to think, oh, an awakening of a group comes when the group does something together. It's easy to think that. But the reality is, as is, is, is we open, as we, as we consider the entirety of Scripture, is that the awakenings come and they start with personal reformation in our private lives. Often through spiritual disciplines, the choice to engage in spiritual disciplines, the choice to engage and spend time with Jesus. It's one of the reasons that as we ended, as we're ending 2021 and moving into 2022, encouraging you to make use of tools, even we offer like the seven marks personal assessment. Where are you in your spiritual journey? And what next steps is God calling you to engage in and moving forward? But awakenings start with personal reformation in our private lives through spiritual disciplines, very often involving repentance. And when, those, when that happens, what it brings is three things. It brings renewal. It brings renewal to each of us. It brings a fresh energy that comes into us personally and then completely and corporately into the church. You know, we've talked a lot lately uh, about uh, the communal reality of our spiritual lives. We are meant to do life together in community with Jesus and with one another. We are in this together. 
but the communal impact is always preceded by a personal engagement, a personal choice, a personal decision. Think of it this way. If we fill this room with 100 pianos, and we wanted to have all those pianos in tune together so you could play them, so we could play them all at the same time. If we started by trying to tune the first piano to the second piano to the third piano to the fourth piano, it would not take us very long to realize these pianos will never be in tune. You can't tune those pianos to each other and get them all in tune. But if someone then walked into that room with a standard, with an objective standard, and began tuning those pianos to what we call a tuning fork with constant and correct pitch, and individually tuned every one of those pianos to that tuning fork, what would happen? Every single one of those hundred pianos would be in tune. They would be in tune together, not because they're in tune with each other, but because they're in tune to the tuning fork. That is the reality of spiritual life. When we try and get in tune with each other without Jesus, it will never happen. But if we choose to tune ourselves to Jesus, the default will be that we will be in tune and in unity with one another. This is renewal. This is renewal that precedes a spiritual awakening. Obedience to the commands of Christ and to common unity with one another leads to renewal and not the other way around. Secondly, as awakening comes, it comes with revival. Not revival as an event or a destination or a week of meetings like so often we use that word, but revival in the sense of an acceleration of the work of the Spirit in us and in his church. It's not an event, but it's an action. If I can be bold here for a moment, a lot of us have appropriated well the low-hanging fruit of spiritual life, the low-hanging fruit of spiritual growth, the low-hanging fruit of spiritual engagement. My friends, it's time for us to lean in deeper into Jesus. It's time to lean in deeper to the Spirit's life for us. It's time for us to lean in deeper to actually become like Jesus. So renewal, revival, and then awakening starts with actually awakening, an awakening to what God is doing in the church that spills out into the culture and the world around us is changed. You've heard me say it often, Jesus in us should always come out of us. If Jesus is not coming out of us, we really probably need to stop and ask the question, is Jesus in us? And are we surrendering our lives so that Jesus can work in us? In fact, that was the whole series we did before Advent, Compassion Interactions, where we looked at the pictures of Jesus' interactions because of who he is with the world around him, hopefully challenging and encouraging us to pursue the same thing. True biblical awakening comes and it encompasses our whole lives. Spiritual formation, personal wholeness, healthy relationships, vocational clarity, which is seeing whatever work you're doing is spiritual in nature, regardless of whether you're paid to be a pastor or not. Economics and work. True biblical awakening comes and encompasses not just part of us, it encompasses all of us as individuals, as a church, full surrender, not just partial, but full. And some of the prep materials from the Alliance in, in, in relation to what we're doing these next six weeks, the question was posed. Could it be that an awakening to Christ in our lives is necessary to bring about the next great awakening in our world? 
Could it be that an awakening to Christ in our lives is necessary to bring about the great about the next great awakening in our world. Friends, we keep waiting for something to happen and maybe that something that needs to happen is us leaning in to Jesus. Instead of waiting for something to happen, looking for someone else to do it for us, do we need to choose to lean into Jesus more fully? So is an awakening possible? How does it come? And when it comes, what does it look like? What does being awakened or reawakened look like? Well, if you stop and think about it for a minute, spiritual awakenings, by the very definition of that word, tend to imply that the previous period was a time of sleep, a time of unawareness, maybe a lack of deep hunger for Jesus' presence, his word, his spirit, or the gospel. Most of us don't like to be caught asleep, do we? I mean, you ever fell asleep in class, the teacher called on you. That was not a moment you wanted to be found in, is it? <laughs> but that period of sleep, that lack of deep hunger for Jesus' presence, his word, his spirit, his gospel, doesn't that accurately describe the overall spiritual culture we find ourselves in? Even within some churches? But here's the thing, the days we live in, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. This is history repeating itself. We live in a time of complacency. We live in a time of indifference, sometimes even antagonism uh, towards the things of God. Sometimes in weariness, we simply stop leaning into the presence of Jesus, which is really ironic when you think about it. It's when we should lean in most. But that weariness sometimes just causes us to want, causes us just to want to sit and be alone and by ourselves. But Jesus himself called the people to an awakening as he began to speak of the gospel, as he began his ministry, as he began to, to focus on the kingdom of God Matthew 5, 6, as he begins the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And so awakenings, they look like a renewed awareness of, they look like a renewed focus on, they look like a renewed sense of Christ and his greatness. Awakenings, they look like a greater reality of us being like Christ. Greater reality of Christ in us. And so, we, and, and, and in a result, we become ones who are totally committed to Christ, becoming like him in supreme love for God, selfless love for others, and a sacrificial love for the world around us. And yes, this is hard. <laughs> this is really hard. It's hard to do because of that battle. And yet, it, it, again, necessitates why it's so important that we are awake to the glory of Christ in us and around us. So as we talk about awakening or reawakening, as we, as we call out to the Lord, Lord, do this again, how do we know that we're even awakening to the right things? If we're going to awaken to something, what is it that we're awakening to? And is it the right thing to awaken to? And this is where we lean into the, the, the focus of a biblical spiritual awakening. And this is what it looks like. And I'm going to give you the answer. And hopefully you probably already know the answer, but I'm going to give it anyway. When, when we look at a reawakening, when we look at what is a biblical spiritual reawakening, what is the focus of that? The answer is simply, let's say it. Jesus, you're not so sure about that. The Sunday school answer works really well at this moment. The focus of a spiritual biblical reawakening is Jesus. Amen, church. Christ and Christ alone is the focus. We're going to look at different aspects of that over the next six weeks, but it begins and it has to begin with the glory and by default the sufficiency 
of Christ. And this has been the heartbeat of the alliance ever since A.B. Simpson started the alliance. And so what is the glory of Christ? What is the glory of Christ? We sing about the glory of Christ. We talk about the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what is it actually? Glory, if we take the broad definition, is basically is the exercise and display of what constitutes the distinctive excellence of whatever we're talking about. Let me read that again. The exercise and display of what constitutes the distinctive excellence of whatever we're talking about. Here's the thing. You, we, can, we can take anything. We can take that chair. We can take this speaker. We can take you know, one of you, and we can talk about things that would be, make you be glorious. The, your distinctive excellence and who you are, what that item is, or your favorite football team, we, we can apply glory to anything. But there is no glory. There's no glory that outshines the glory of God. And for God, as we talk about the glory of God, our thoughts hopefully immediately go to his divine attributes, his infinite perfections, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his goodness, his holiness. Do I need to keep going? His overwhelming presence and grace and mercy and compassions, his love. As we talk about the, the, the divine attributes, the infinite perfections, I don't know about you, but my mind immediately goes to moments when his glory was visible to mere humans like us. Moments like when his goodness passes before Moses in all its fullness in Exodus 33. The fact of God's glory going before the Israelites as a pillar of fire or cloud as they journeyed away from Egypt. But yet God's glory was also seen in the fact that Jesus came in the flesh. This was God's glory in John chapter 1. And when Jesus' birth was announced and the angels appeared to the shepherds, the scriptures tell us that the glory of the Lord shone round about them. The glory of the Lord was present. It's no wonder they were afraid. The first miracle of Jesus in John 2, when he turns the water into wine, is said that he at that moment revealed his glory to his family and the people around him. We could go on. But I want to, I want to narrow around in just a moment. And I want to talk about a few things about the glory of Christ the Son that, that we have to grasp as we talk about reawakening to the glory of Christ. And here's the first one. Number one, Christ's glory, as John Stumbo so adequately reminded us, has always existed. It has always existed. John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Hebrews 1.3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The glory of Christ has always existed and the glory of Christ also includes all of the divine attributes that we just talked about. There's nothing that Christ does not possess of that glory. But, but, there is one aspect of Christ's glory that is unique, I believe, to him and him alone. And I believe that this is key to any conversation that we want to have about the glory of Christ. And it's this, it's what we've just remembered. It's what we just celebrated during the Advent and Christmas time. The fact that he is fully God 
and fully man, and that Jehovah of the Old Testament became incarnate, literally enfleshed in human body as Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of God. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the Old Testament, God's glory dwelt in the temple, it dwelt in the tabernacle. But in the New Testament, we see God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ. And even as Jesus became a baby and was born as a human, he didn't stop being divine. His glory did not stop. Now, we tend to focus very much, and rightly so, on the humanity and the humility of Christ, but he was still the eternal God, the Son. Philippians 2, 6, and 7, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Let me describe it this way. How many of you are familiar with the TV show Undercover Boss? Get those hands high. I'm old and blind and can't see that well. All right. If you're not familiar with the show, there's been like 10 seasons. And basically, the premise of this show is that uh, there's a company of, the, company of the week, and the, the CEO or a high executive of this company will alter their appearance and go and work on the front lines of this company with like entry-level jobs, delivery or collecting trash, you know, baking hamburger buns and by the mass quantities, whatever the case may be. And of course, he experiences that. Nobody knows that's who it is. And at the end of this show, there's usually some heartwarming, you know, uh, Kodak moments, Hallmark moments uh, that, you know, he learns something, he changes something, he blesses somebody, whatever the case may be. The point of that, though, isn't so much what happens at the end of the show, but the fact is this, is even as this guy or gal is on the front lines, maybe they've altered their appearance, they're still the boss, just because they're now baking bread or driving the delivery truck or whatever the case may be, you're working the cashier or refilling the, the buffet after the kids slime their fingers through it. Um, this person, they're still the boss. They're still the boss. Now, they may not, they're not, obviously in that moment, they're choosing not to exercise their bossly authority and their rights as leader of that company, but they don't stop being the boss even as they serve as an entry-level employee. Jesus was still the boss. He didn't stop being the holy, glorious, divine second person of the Trinity just because he was walking the earth like you and I. He was both at the same time. And this is important to understand because as awesome as we think we are as humans sometimes, it was an act of condescension for Jehovah to assume human form. He created us he loves us. He desperately wants to be in a relationship with us. But my friends, don't ever forget this. He is far, 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 far above us. Jesus still had his glory as he walked this earth. And the key passage where we see that glory of Christ is demonstrated in the scripture is in Luke, uh, Luke chapter, chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. And we know that as the story of the transfiguration. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. 
Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. Have you ever noticed how the disciples always end up falling asleep when it's time to pray? What, what is that about? It's not a very exciting thing to be known for. Um, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And in parentheses, he did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and, there were, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When that voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this, this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. Can you imagine being there in that moment? As the glory of Jesus burst out of his earthly body. The fact that Jesus is fully man and fully human it had to be this way so that redemption would work. But here's the thing. The reality of Jesus as fully man and fully God is still who Christ is. Still who Christ is. The incarnation is in perpetuity. He did not stop being fully God and fully human after his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. He didn't rise in some amorphous blob that kind of floats around. He rose with a body, didn't he? It was a glorified body. It was a great body. It's a body I'm looking forward to in many ways. And he retains that yet today. He retains that. He retains his humanity even as he took back on and, and began using once again the fullness of his deity. And it's how Stephen saw Christ in Acts 7.55 as he was stoned to death. It's how Jesus appeared to Paul and ended up blinding him, or Saul, in Acts 9.3. And it's how he will return and the whole earth will be filled with his glory. He will come in a visible presence, yet the entire earth at the one time will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Amen? Amen. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. Amen. A clear understanding of the glory of Christ and why it is so central to a healthy spiritual awakening is vital. This is where theology and orthodoxy are key. And this is where, again, the challenge to move beyond the low-hanging spiritual fruit into a little bit higher in the tree is really important for us. The right understanding of Jesus' glory, who he is, will impact our faith and our spiritual walk. It will impact how we view the world around us. It will impact how we view ourselves in Jesus. The glory of Christ is in who he is. The glory of Christ is in who he has always been. The glory of Christ is who is in who he will always be. And the glory of Christ is in what he has done in bringing God to us so that we can enter the kingdom again and establishing a new communion, a new relationship, a new covenant between God and man. And kickstarting as he defeated death and rose again, kickstarting the process of new creation, of recreation, of his presence. For every legitimate spiritual awakening that has taken place, there have also been many more false awakenings. 
that were more focused on emotion alone, that were more focused on an individual who wasn't Christ or even represented Christ well, that was more focused on the glory of humans, the list could go on. And if we don't have a right view, if we don't have a historic orthodox view, if we don't have a biblical view of the glory of Christ, then we run the risk of operating solely in emotion, solely in the feels, and not in spirit and truth. And it's this tension, it's this mystery of Christ as fully God and fully man that has been an ongoing struggle, a landmine, a, a, a bog for many people throughout our theological history. I mean, really think about it. How deeply can we start thinking about how does that actually work? How does that actually work? I don't know about you, but if I think too far deep into that, I'm pretty certain my brain will explode and it'll be all over the floor in front of you. It's just so vast and complex and deep and and mysterious, yet it's so real. And it is the glory of Christ. In the CMA accreditation process for those moving into full-time ministry roles, pastors, international workers, and the like. There's a doctrinal questionnaire, and there's an interview. It's pretty rigorous. Trust me, I know. Um, But the person and work of Jesus Christ is one of the main topics throughout that interview, throughout that process. Because what we believe about Jesus is key to our faith. What we believe and understand about the gospel is key not only to our own discipleship, but how we will disciple others. Here's the thing, those questions, those concepts, they're not just for professional ministers. They're not just for those of us that are paid to stand up here and do this. They're actually important for every single follower of Jesus. Do we desire to know Jesus better, to conform to his image, to reflect that image to the world around us? And if we're not, all we're doing then is creating a Jesus in our own image. And I can promise you, church, there is no glory in that but Christ but Christ Christ in us is our hope of glory and if we don't know the Christ in us we don't keep our eyes fixed on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith if we're not awake to his glory in us then our hope and our existence is weak and misplaced ineffective but when we know when we grasp when we hear about the wondrous glory of Christ we can't help but want to experience and see it and so we resonate with the words of Habakkuk that we started with Lord I've heard of your fame I stand in awe of your deeds Lord repeat them in our day in our time make them known in wrath remember mercy the rest of Habakkuk's prayer in chapter 3 though, isn't a petition. It's not a lament. It's not a sob story about their situation, a woe is me. It's actually a praise. It's a praise of things that Habakkuk himself personally had never seen or experienced. But he had heard of the awesomeness of the Lord and his glory. He believed and he wanted more. So the question for us today is this. For you, for me, do you and I desire to reawaken to the glory of Christ? Do you and I desire to reawaken to the glory of Christ? 
And I recognize in, 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 that, in, that in saying that and in, in raising that question, that's a scary question for some of us. It's scary because reawakening to the glory of Christ means seeing Christ for who he is. It means acknowledging who we are and who we're not. It means that, again, that he is the only way, and it is a step in the process and sometimes difficult process of full surrender and sanctification. Because I believe this with all my heart, if we see the glory of Christ in us and in those around us, our life can't be the same. Our life can't be the same if we truly see and experience the glory of Christ. But there's a lot of things that we look to, sometimes consciously, sometimes subconsciously, that, that, that we look to for to define our own glory, that we look to to, to declare our own excellence. Things like our finances, our bank accounts, maybe our family, um, maybe our education, maybe our nationality, our ethnicity, maybe the number of followers we have on social media, maybe our reputation in the community. The list could go on. These are things that we look to, to define. These are things that the world tells us will define our glory, define who we are. But yet they are things that, as followers of Jesus, that we allow to take the place of the glory of Christ. Those things will never be greater than the glory of Christ. But we allow those things to draw our eyes away from the glory of Christ in us. Maybe because we think they're safe. Maybe because we think they don't ask a lot of us. Maybe because we think we can control them, which really we can't. And so when we ask, do you desire to reawaken to the glory of Christ? It's scary because it means we're not going to be in control. And we like to be in control, don't we? You don't have to nod your heads, but I know it's true. So maybe as we ask that question, it's, it's scary for some. Maybe for others here, as we ask that question, you hear it and you're like, okay, so what? Some of us have become stale to the glory and wonder of Jesus. Why? There's lots of reasons why. A few that come to mind. We're comfortable. We're happy with life. We're happy with the way it is. We're happy with the kingdom we've constructed for ourselves. We're comfortable. Why do we want to rock that? Maybe because we're complacent. We just don't care. We aren't hungry. We aren't pursuing holiness. We aren't pursuing righteousness. We're complacent in our life. Maybe it's a convenience factor because the reality is the life of Christ is rarely safe, easy, or convenient. And we don't want to be inconvenienced. Maybe it's a, a culture reason, either because you're embracing culture or else you're so hard crusading against it in ways that actually aren't biblical or Jesus-honoring that culture draws your attention away from Jesus. Maybe church has become a thing that you do instead of who you are. Maybe because you're confused about the, your true citizenship as a follower of Jesus. Or maybe you're just cynical. Life's just too hard. It's just not worth it. There's too much doubt. There, no one can be trusted. It's all a waste of time. Church, we're called to so much more than that. We're called to so much more. Paul in Ephesians 5:14, for everything made visible is light, and for this reason it says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
I don't know about you, but I hear the themes of Habakkuk 3.2 there yet again. And Paul himself is even referencing, referencing Isaiah 61. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. In the light of the glory of Christ, everything else pales. Who we think we are pales. What we think we want pales. Because there's something better. There's something better. For the biblical, loving, spirit-filled disciple, the glory of Christ is paramount. In us, through us, around us, with us, in every moment of every day. Christ as Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, Coming King is real and true and is His glory. So as 2022 begins... The Alliance is calling us to collectively spend time reawakening to Christ. For us as a fact family, as, whether it's as individuals, disciple communities, or as we gather together, what can we do to see and experience the glory of Christ? There's two things that I think, if we start with those, will make a huge, huge difference. Number one, open-hearted, open-handed, honest, intentional prayer. Not a drive-by prayer as you get up in the morning, not a quickie as you're stuck on Big A Road, not a quickie as you forgot to study for a test or you realized you forgot to do the report at work or whatever the case may be, but open-hearted, open-handed, honest, intentional prayer. Prayer for reawakening in our own lives and in one another and in the church prayer for greater power of the Holy Spirit in our life, in our work, in our families, in our neighborhoods. Being convinced that you and I cannot go on without his power. Prayer that we would not be ashamed of Jesus. Prayer. The second thing being this, wholehearted, whole life worship. And I don't mean showing up here and singing on Sunday morning, although I love it when you do that. It has really nothing to do with singing at all. But whole life, wholehearted worship and response to Jesus' presence in our life. When we are reawakened to the glory of Christ, the goal isn't just to observe that glory. Going back to the story of the transfiguration, Peter wanted to hang out and observe the glory of Christ. Who can blame him? It's pretty awesome, I imagine so. But what does the Father say? He says, listen to my son. And what does Jesus tell them? He tells them to go and make disciples. Worship is living our lives in adoration and surrender and submission and admiration of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, listening and hearing, responding. Terry Smith, uh, Vice President for Church Ministries Alliance, he spoke here last year, says this, as we get a glimpse of his glory, we should find ourselves compelled to worship him. I would interject there with all of our life, as Jumbo, John Stumbo stated, with adoration with admiration, and with worship. This morning, as we begin to wrap up, how are you thinking about the glory of Christ? What is shaping your understanding of the glory of Christ? Do you desire to see, to experience, and even to respond to the glory of Christ? 
A.W. Tozer once said, O God, I have tasted thy goodness and has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. The glory of Christ is never ending, friends, but it also is never enough. It's never enough. One of our desires of the Alliance family as we seek to reawaken to Christ during these 40 days is that each of us will see Jesus as the beautiful gemstone that he is. That we'd see Jesus as the one he is in all his glory. And that, we, that, that, and that this, this reawakening, this reawakening to the glory of Christ will truly, truly spill out into our churches and into our culture and throughout our world. This is all of Jesus for all the world. And all of Jesus for all the world is about Jesus. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. Long before Christ was born, Habakkuk cried out to the Lord, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And after Christ was born, he died, he resurrected, he ascended, and the church was established. The Apostle Paul wrote, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Well, by the way, Paul was writing to the early church. He was writing to people like you and me, not to the world out there. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you, to me, to us this morning about our glorious King. I'm going to invite you to respond this morning. We're going to spend a few moments in prayer. So I'm going to invite you to simply bow your heads and quiet your hearts, your minds. In these next few moments, I'm just going to lead us through a response of prayer, a response in prayer this morning. As we consider the glory of Christ, as we consider what the Lord might be saying or wanting to say to us, I invite you to begin this process by remembering. Remembering that during his incarnation, the glory of Christ was often veiled and instead his humility was seen. But yet that did not diminish his glory which has existed from eternity past will continue into eternity future. But even during his incarnation, his glory was still seen from time to time. In light of that, I want to invite us to pray with thanks and to pray in worship for the eternality of Christ, for his, the unfathomable reality of his incarnation and for the fullness of his deity. You should take a moment to give thanks for those things and worship the Lord for it.
Lord, today in these moments, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for no other reason, really, than because you are worthy of it. But Lord, today in these moments, as we have sung this morning, as we've heard the scriptures, if we've been hopefully reminded, Lord, we give you thanks that you have always existed. We give you thanks that even in the midst of your vast greatness and uncontainable glory, Lord, that you came. You came as fully God and fully man. You came with the fullness of your deity. Yet you walked in humility so that we could be restored to the Father. As we recognize those things, Lord God, as we, as we worship you, as we acknowledge who you are, Lord, may we also be aware of your sacred presence among us. May we treasure the greatness of Jesus, the sinless one. Lord, your servants are listening this morning. Speak to us about who you are.